Go ahead and open your Bibles up to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. We began our study last week in Romans 1. This week we're going to continue on through, uh, picking it up in verse 8, looking at verses 8 through 17 of Romans uh, chapter one. Um, the uh, you know if you don't have a Bible and you need one, then you can uh, use your smartphone or tablet and open that up to the YouVersion Bible app. Also in Facebook and YouTube, there's a link there for you, so you can click the link and maybe you don't have the app. It'll just take you to a, a web browser that will uh, sh- share that with you and walk through it with you as well. Um, I- I remember the last time I was teaching the book of Romans, um, I was thinking about this this week, just thinking back uh, across the last time I taught through the book of Romans, and it was actually back in 2007, uh, where, and I was in Indonesia on uh, the island of Bali, and uh, there in, on the island of Bali, they had this uh, like Bible college for the local pastors there, and uh, the, the pastors there had never really had any uh, theological training, and so uh, the missionaries would bring in different pastors to come and to teach at the Bible college. And uh, I taught through the book of Romans there. I think I was there for 10 days. I want to say that we taught through Romans in maybe six or seven days. Um, and it was, it was long classes, four hour long classes. Um, and I just, uh, I remember the hunger of these people. I've never seen somebody so excited for God's word. I mean, you know, if I go for an hour today, you guys are going to be frustrated for the most part. Uh, but it, but these people, we would we would go for four hours, and they were sad every single night that the study was over, and uh, they were just looking and hungering for more and more of God's word. And, and I just remember as I spent all of that time with these people, I didn't know their language. Uh, I looked very different from them. I literally stood head and shoulders above all of them. And I mean, look at me, I'm, I'm a ginger. I'm very pale. Uh, and so, you know, I stand out among white people, you know, I was standing out among Indonesian people. And so they were, you know, they, but that didn't matter because the, there was something else that was drawing us together to one another. And it was the idea of Christian fellowship, that our relationship was based on something much deeper than geography, language, uh, the amount of melanin in our skin, uh, that we had a deep relationship. And I was able to develop a deep relationship with these people and feel so close to them. And they with me, uh, and, and I have this, uh, even now today on my bookshelf, I have this handmade uh, book that they, they got and they all had a, a handwritten note in it to me, just uh, thanking me for coming. And it was just, just tremendous time. And that's amazing thing that God's able to do, how God is able to take people um, from all sorts of different walks of life and different experiences and even different languages and in different geographies, and he's able to bring them together in something deeper than even some family blood relationships, that there's something else that's able to take place. And it's because of Jesus. It's because of being a part of his family. And and so that's what we're going to be looking at together today, that Christian relationship transcends all all of those other things that our normal, um, you know, hindrances are are uh, are centered around, our, our normal distinguishes, distinguishing marks, and our normal um, things that separate us. Christian Christian relationship transcends all of that in culture and language and geography. So here's our big idea as we look at Romans chapter one verses eight through uh, seventeen together today. It says this: the gospel influences and infects our relationships with God and man. That's really what we're paying attention to. That's really what we're looking at is how the gospel isn't just this religious thing that we believe in. It's not just a set of theological ideas that we say that we ascribe to. It's much more than that. It's a deep relational thing that affects our relationship with God, but also with People. So let's read Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17 together today, and then we'll go back through and break it down together. It says this, Romans 1, 8, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart some spiritual gift, uh, impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. That is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual, uh, by mutual faith of both you and me. Verse 13. Now I do not 
want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, to both wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you together today uh, as we gather in our homes and uh, in various other places, thinking on you and giving our attention to you. And and Lord, we want to pause and pray and ask for your help. We know that you're the one who is good. You're the one who is God. And this is your word that we open. And so we ask for you to impart to us your wisdom. Allow us to understand what this says and, and deeper than that to understand you. We want to know you better and we want to be able to apply your word to our lives. So give us that conviction. Lord, have open reign in our hearts and lives to show us where we are drifting away from you and what you think and bring us back to you. Help us to be uh, courageous enough to uh, dive into repentance. And so we commit today to you saying thank you for it. We thank you for the great way you love us and for the opportunity to open your word together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today in Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17, we're going to be looking at this in three parts. We're going to break it down into three pieces. Number one, verses 8 through 10, good relationships require time. Verses 11 through 15, good relationships require effort. And then verses 16 and 17, good relationships require God. Now, you see, Christianity alone holds the potential for the deepest possible type of any human relationship. That there, there are these deep human relationships that we have that are accessible and available to us. And yet, the, the only way that you're going to experience the deepest possible human relationship is within the bounds, within the confines, within the structure of Christianity. Nothing else even comes close. You see, anybody can experience family. Anybody can have a family. Anybody can experience friendship. Anybody can experience brotherhood and camaraderie. You know, different things that we go through, whether it's common experiences or common interests or, you know, different kinds of uh, things that we go through, hobbies and things like that, uh, those can be the basis for establishing some kind of relationship. And even those relationships can be very deep relationships. And yet, and yet something else remains outside of our grasp if we're not in Christ, if there's not a regenerate heart, if you aren't a part of the family of faith. You see, Christian relationship as designed by God has the potential for extraordinary supernatural depth that no other relationship is capable of reaching. That there is something significant and different that God has set aside because here's why it involves the entire person. You are a triune being. You, you have three parts to you. Just like God is triune, we see in scripture, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Well, part of being made in God's image means that you and I, we are triune beings. We are body, uh, are physical. We are mental and emotional. There's a, that's a side of us as well. And then we also have a spiritual component to us uh, as well. And so we have these three different parts of our lives. And, and the truth is that uh, most people it, that uh, are, are living in a, a position or a state of spiritual death, their, their spirit is not alive. Yes, they under, they're physically alive. Yes, they're mentally and emotionally alive. And yet, they're spiritually dead. Why? Because the Bible talks about being uh, born again. John chapter 3, Jesus talks about that. John 3, 3. That you have to be born again. And what, what he's talking about th- with that is that you need to become spiritually alive. When we look all the way back in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, we see that Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they take of the, the, free, the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they eat of it. And God said, in that moment, you will die. Now, when they ate the fruit, they didn't fall over dead. They didn't just drop dead in that moment. Uh, but they did die in a, in a totally different sense. 
They spiritually died in that moment. And every single person since the beginning, since our first parents, Adam and Eve, they have been born spiritually dead, including you and me. Been born spiritually dead. And until Jesus intervenes and invades our lives and causes us to be reborn, to be spiritually made alive, there is an entire aspect of relationship that's not even possible without that. Yes, you can have a deep uh, relationship physically and mentally, emotionally. But if you don't have spiritual life, there's no way for you to experience the deepest part, the deepest type of relationship possible. Uh, and so it is with, within our lives that, you know, we can, we can have, if, you know, maybe one person in a relationship is saved as a Christian and the other's not, then that's going to have a rift. That's going to have a, a natural blocking to the relationship. Uh, so too, if two people are not Christians, they're just not going to experience that kind of depth. But also one of the things with this is, is that, um, this powerful, rich dimension of relationship, it's only accessed spiritually. And what the Bible calls that is the word fellowship. That's the term that the Bible uses. It's fellowship. Now, fellowship is not the default though. I, I want to caution you with this. Just because you're a Christian and they're a Christian, just because you're both spiritually alive, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to default to having a fellowship type of relationship. And sadly, many Christians have never experienced what fellowship is. And because they, they don't dive into the deep parts of relationship, they don't share their common faith with one another, there's no pursuit of Jesus together. It's just, you know, this uh, surface level kind of a thing. People settle for that. They settle for the shallow relationship because it's familiar, because it's safe, and because they think that that's just going to be enough. But the truth is, you were designed for a lot more. It's this idea of, of fellowship, what the Bible describes, uh, uses that word as. So let's look at this together, this first part. Good relationships require time, verses 8 through 10 of uh, Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, 8 says this, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. You see, the faith of the Roman church is widely known. That, that across the, the known world at this time, uh, it's governed and being run by the Roman Empire. And so the church in Rome uh, is being spoken of throughout the entire known world at the time. And Paul says, this is an amazing thing. I'm so excited about this and, and so glad that this is a reality. And so he commends them for it. He encourages them in that. And the reality of this, the truth in this is that uh, a real genuine faith is impossible to hide. That, that there's no way for you to keep secret a radically transformed life because the way you think is going to be different. The stuff you value is going to be different. The way you act is going to be different. The way you talk is going to be different. If you're truly in Christ, you are going to simply stick out. Because you're just not going to be like everybody else. It's impossible to hide genuine faith. You see, a faith that is placed in Jesus disrupts everything in your life. It reorients your entire life. He gives you new purpose and new trajectory. Jesus doesn't just move into your life like a roommate. No, he comes in and he takes over. He rearranges furniture. He takes, you know, some of the paintings off the walls and puts different things on the walls. He, uh, he opens some windows. Jesus moves in and takes over. He's not looking to be your roommate. He's looking to be your landlord. And so we've got to change the way that we see Jesus and see him in a position of, of influencing and infecting everything. You see, it, when we think about this, most people, they're striving for balance in life. It's probably something you think about. It's probably something that's on your heart and on your mind that you're wondering, you know, where's the balance in my life? Am I, am I overbalanced on this area? Am I, you know, am I, maybe right now you're watching way too much Netflix. That's out of balance, right? So most people are trying to figure out how to balance some different things in their lives. And in this, uh, one of the things I, I, I want to just draw to your attention is that I believe that this is a fundamental misunderstanding of how life works. That, that as we're doing this, as we're trying trying to figure out how to, uh, how to balance out our lives, we, we're just not understanding it correctly, especially lives in Christ. You see, the illusion of balance is seen as your life is like a linear stack. 
and you put the most important thing and you got to put that on the very top of the stack. And then from there, everything else falls in diminishing value underneath that uh, as, in, as value of importance. And we just, you know, line everything up in this stack. And the, the reality of it is that that's a great way to run a business. It's a great way to run an organization, but a terrible way to live your life. If you try to live your life that way, it's never going to work. And so people who are seeking balance live in perpetual frustration. They're constantly frustrated. They're constantly uh, filled with worry and anxiety because they, they feel like they're running to one side and trying to keep the balance and then running back to the other side and trying to keep the balance and it just seems to never work. As soon as things seem like they're all stacked and lined up and everything's working great, then it all starts to fall apart once again. And, and that the reason is because... Balance is really, it's an illusion. It's a thing that we're chasing that's an illusion. You see, your life isn't like a linear stack. Your life is a lot more like the solar system. Your life is, is like the solar system. And at the very center of the solar system is the sun. And then everything else is revolving around the sun's gravity. Everything within our solar system is either, is either in the solar system and revolving around the sun or it's outside the solar system and it doesn't belong. It's not in. That's much more how your life works. And so the question is not, how do I stack everything up and, and put the most important things at the top? The question is, what is at the position of the sun? What's at the center of your life? Is it the sun of God? Is it Jesus? Does he have that position of being the centerpiece of everything? And then anything and everything that's in your life revolves around the gravity of Jesus? Or is, is something else taking the center place in your life? Is it your, your ego and your, your pride and your fame and your popularity? Is it your, your hobby, your, your sport, your thing that you like to tinker on, that next thing you need to buy, that next place you need to go? What's at the centerpiece of your life? What's driving everything? What's the gravity at which everything else in your life revolves around? What is taking that place? What's, what has the most important position? You see, you can either have balance, or you can have a radical life, but you can't have both. You're not going to be able to have both. Think about Jesus. Would you call his life balanced? Absolutely not. Think about the apostle Paul. Everyone's like, man, Paul's amazing. I, I just wish I could live a life like the apostle Paul. Was his life balanced? Absolutely not. He was, he was crazy. The guy would, would travel across uh, the, the known world on, on foot just to go talk to people about Jesus. And that's what he's talking about here in Romans. I, I want to come and see you guys and be able to preach the gospel in Rome as well. You see, you can have a radical life or you can have a balanced life, but you can't have both. And so what I want to encourage you to do is stop chasing balance. Start chasing a radical life in Christ. That's where life is really going to be found. And so Paul here in verses 9 and 10, he spends time on two things in order to deepen and further relationship with the people of Rome. Notice there in verse 9, he says this, For God is my witness, whom I serve in my spirit, with, uh, with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers." The first thing that Paul gives attention to, the, the number one thing that, that he says here in order to deepen and further relationship is prayer. This is a habit of prayer that he has. He says that without ceasing, I make mention of you in my prayers. And what he's talking about is how I'm praying often. I'm praying all the time. It's something that I'm constantly doing. And every time I'm praying, you are a part of my prayer. That it's something that is just a, a natural part of the way that he prays. His ha the way that he prays. His habit is to be in prayer. And, and he's often praying for the church in Rome. Here, let me say it to you this way, this way. What you pray about is what you care about. You only pray about the things that you care about. If, if you say you care about something, but it's never on your mind, it's never something you're talking about, you're not talking to God about it, then I would challenge you to say, I don't think you really care about that thing. It's not something that you really genuinely value if you don't pray about it, if it's not on your heart and mind. If you don't pray about it, you don't really care about it, no matter what you say. You see, think about your relationships. Think about the different kinds of relationships that you have in your life. Are, are you praying for them? Are you praying for those people in your life? Do they come across your heart and mind? Are you asking for God's favor in their life? Are you asking for God's blessing in, your li in their life? Are you asking for God to direct their path? Are you asking for God to unveil and reveal different things to them? Are they a part of that, that prayer? Who's left out? Who doesn't make your list? 
Who's, who's not there? Is it maybe some people in your family, some, some people in your church? Do you pray for the church? I hope you do. I pray that you do. I, I mean, I think about this, Paul saying, I'm praying for you, the church of Rome, and, and their, their uh, um, impact is so massive that the whole known world knows about it. I wonder how much of that is attached to people were praying for the church in Rome. And, and so I pray and I hope that you're praying for us, for our church as well. Do you pray for the people who are at work or maybe your neighbors? Do you pray for your enemies? Remember Jesus told us to do that? Pray for your enemies. It's really hard to hate somebody if you're praying for them. Who's that person you don't want to pray for? Right now you're arguing with me. You don't want to pray for them. They're in your mind. You're, you're like, I don't, I don't want to even think about them. You should pray for them. Take some time to ask for God to, to lead them and direct them and guide them. You'll have a really hard time hating people you're praying for. Number two, not only does Paul spend time on prayer, but look at verse 10. He says this, making request if by some means, now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. He says, I want to actually get there. Not only does Paul pray, but number two, the thing that he spends time on to deepen and further the relationship is making plans and preparation to spend time together. He has plans to say, I want to be with you. I don't want to just write a letter to you. I don't want to just connect to you in distance. I want to actually be physically where you are. And this is, this is also what Paul says he's praying about. Not only is he praying for them, but he's saying, I'm praying that God would allow me to be able to come and spend some time with you. You see, most of us live our lives through the matrix of, when we're thinking about time, uh, through the matrix of, I'm going to value quality time over the quantity of time. That, that if I've got a pick, then I'm going to say, you know what, I just want some really good time instead of just abundance or a lot of time. And, and I understand why we think that and why we value that. Because really, if you were to value one over the other, of course, the quality of the time matters far above the amount of time that's spent. But here's the thing that I want to submit to you. Here's the thing I want to challenge you to think about with this. You don't know when the quality time is going to show up. How often has it been that in the middle of just these random things in life, that all of the sudden, something really quality, something really genuine, something really amazing happens spontaneously that you didn't plan? You see... The, the issue with it is not that quality time isn't the valuable thing. It's that you don't know when it's going to show up. And quality time shows up in the abundance of the quantity of time. That, that when you have a lot of time being spent with people, that's where the good, genuine things come from. You see, if you want a deeper relationship, you're going to have to spend time. You're going to have to make effort to be with that other person. More time equals better relationship. That's just generally the way that it goes. Here's how uh, David Jeremiah says it. If you want to have friendships, it's always your turn. Think about that. If you want friendships, it's always your turn. How many times have you said, oh, I just, I don't know why, but I don't, I don't have friends or I don't have that relationship or, or it's not as deep as I want it to be. Well, it's always your turn. When's the last time you reached out? When's the last time you said, hey, uh, let's spend some time together? Now, okay, I know we're doing the social distancing thing and you're like, I can't, okay? The government told me no. And so you're like, okay, I, I get that. I understand that. But are you making plans for it? Are you like Paul saying, I want this. I'm, I'm thinking on this. I'm praying for this. I'm planning for this, that when the opportunity comes, then I'm going to do this. You see, I can't tell my wife I love her and not make plans and preparations to spend time with her, not to give her my attention. You see, the love is displayed through the time. Secondly, not only do good relationships require time, but they also require effort. Look at verse, uh, verses 11 and 12. It says this, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith of both you and me. You see, Paul understood here as he goes into this next piece that he understood that Christian growth, uh, how it happens, that, that, that he didn't see himself in, in some sort of superior position. He wasn't saying, I'm up here and you're down here. And so really, I'm awesome and you're just lowly. I'm, I'm the Apostle Paul and you're just the Christian's in Rome. No, he understood it that the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. 
that there is no hierarchy in Jesus, that there's not other people who are closer to you, and so you've got to go sit in a box with a lattice between you and ask them to pray for you and forgive your sins. That's not how it works. The way it works is you've been given access directly to God because of Jesus, that there's one mediator between God and man, it's the man Jesus Christ. You have, you have just as much access to God as I do. I, I'm not more superior to you, I'm not more closer to God than you and Billy, well, Billy Graham is now because he's in the presence of the Lord, but when he was alive, that he didn't, he didn't have better access to God than you or I did, that there's no hierarchy within Christianity. There's just saints. That's it. There's just people who are in Christ and that's it. And so Paul didn't see himself as above everybody else, but he, he saw that he needed them just as much as they needed him. He didn't want to go to Rome because it was majestic and glorious, even though it's an amazing city, even to this day. Rome's a, one of the most beautiful cities in the world. And, and so, you know, as, as he is thinking about going to Rome, it's not for all those reasons. It's not because it's a cool vacation spot, uh, but the whole reason w- was because he wanted to share in their common faith. He wanted them to be grown in the faith just as much as he was. And they, this longing that Paul has to see them is that he's longing to be connected to them. See that there in verse uh, 11? I long to see you. And when I read that, I was, I was thinking, man, how amazing is it that this is what we're thinking on? This is what we're talking about. This is what we're going through here uh, in our time, in our day. That right now, as I'm looking at a camera, I long to see you. I, I don't, I don't want to look at a camera. I don't want to stare into this technology. I, I want to see you. I want to ask how you're doing. And I want to share a cup of coffee and a donut on Sunday or something and just talk about things of life and just be able to hang out together and build a, a church in the middle of a school and, and just do those things that we do and share our common faith with one another because we were built for relationship. We need to be near and around one another. You see, Paul saw the church not as a building or an organization or a set of theological ideas, but he saw it as people in relationship. And that's exactly what we are doing and what we value as well. Proverbs 27, 17 says it like this, as iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. He understood this, right? Do you see that there in verse, uh, verse um, uh, 11 and 12? He says, I want to come to you and impart a spiritual gift. And then he qualifies in verse 12 by saying, you see, really the thing that I'm saying is not that I'm awesome and you need me, but that I want to, I want to share my relationship with you. I need something from you as much as you need something from me. That's how it works in the life, uh, in the body of Christ. That sharing common faith and serving one another is a key component that separates fellowship from friendship. If you want to go deeper than just acquaintance, if you want to go deeper than just uh, we share hobbies and we, we both ride bikes or we both work on cars or we both play a certain sport or we're both in the same fantasy football league or whatever it happens to be. If you want to go deeper than that, then the way you're going to get there is through uh, sharing your common faith and serving one another. That's the way you're going to get there. It's, it's not going to be just by the shallow things of life. You're going to have to go into a spiritual dimension in order to get that depth. You see, this is the essence of what discipleship is, what Paul's describing here. A wrong view of discipleship is that I'm higher and you're lower, that, that I know things, you don't know things. I'm awesome, you're not that awesome. Uh, I'm the disciple-er, you're the disciple-e. I make disciples of me. That is an absolute wrong view of discipleship. That's not how discipleship works. And if you have that view of discipleship, then what I would say is that you have a very prideful, arrogant view of discipleship. That's not what it is. We make disciples of Jesus, not ourselves. I don't make any, if I make disciples of Cody, then I am failing as a pastor. That is not my job. My job is to make disciples of Jesus. And as I do that, the people that I come in contact with and interact with are going to be just as vital to making me a disciple of Jesus. It's this common faith that we're sharing. A right view is that we grow together and that takes humility. You see, if you're humble enough, you can learn from anybody if you're humble enough. Even people who, you know, you look at them, you go, I don't really, uh, all I really learned from you was not what not to do. You can still learn from them if you're humble enough to do so. In verse, verses 13 through 15, we see that Paul had some plans to get to Rome. See in verse 13, he says, now 
I don't want to be, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that I had often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now that I may have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. So Paul says, my plan was to get there. I've been, I've been thinking about this. I've been praying about this. I've been planning for this. I've been trying to even come, but there's been some hindrances that have come across my path. And you know, the really, the thing was that he wanted to get there as he says that uh, to have some fruit among them. And he says in uh, verse 15, uh, as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. He says, I want to add my voice to the voice of those who are preaching in Rome so the gospel of Jesus can go out. And I, I just, I want to participate. I want to be a part of it as well. I want to see lives changed for Jesus. And I want to be able to, to go to Rome and see that take place. You see, he had plans uh, to get there, but things weren't working out the way that he had hoped. Can you relate to that? You ever have that happen? You've got plans, you've got uh, stuff going on, you've got things taking place, and yet it's just not happening the way that you hoped. We as a church, next Saturday, we're going to have a five-year anniversary bash and uh, you know do a barbecue and, a, and basically a, a block party to celebrate God's five years of faithfulness to us as a church. And you know now we can't even gather together for regular church on Sunday. So we had plans, but they got ruined. It got disrupted. It got, uh, you know, things just weren't happening the way that we had planned. This is a common human experience. You're not the redheaded stepchild because your plans didn't work out. God's not mad at you because your plans didn't work out. You're not the, you're not the kid that God just likes to pick on because your plans didn't work out. This is just a common human experience. Now, there were two reasons that Paul could have been hindered, that his plans could have been hindered. Number one, because God didn't want him to that God didn't allow him to go. Maybe it was not the right time. Maybe it wasn't the right space. Maybe God had some other things or some, somewhere else. God wanted Paul to be able to go, whatever it happened to be. And, and sometimes we have the right heart from God, but not the right timing from the Lord, right? God gives you a desire for something and he says, hey, I want you to do this. And, and yet it's just not the right time. It's, it's gonna be later on. That, uh, or maybe we're not the right person. Maybe God wants that thing to happen. You have the heart for it, but he doesn't wanna use you. He just wants you to be praying about it. He wants to use somebody else for it. Uh, think about it like this in Acts chapter 16, verses six through seven. It says, next Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Perga and Galatia uh, because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Then, coming to the borders of Mysia, they headed north of the province of Bithynia, but again, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. See there in those verses, uh, Acts 16, 6 through 7, we see that twice the Holy Spirit did not allow Paul to go to the places he intended to go to, to go to the places he wanted to. Now, was there some sort of wrong motive from Paul to go to these places? Of course not. He was going for the express purpose of presenting the gospel. Does God not like those people and doesn't want them to hear the gospel? Of course not. Of course God wants them to hear the gospel, but God had different plans for Paul. And so God moved him where he wanted him to be. And even though he had the right heart, he, it wasn't the right time or maybe he wasn't the right guy. Secondly, another reason why, God, why uh, his plans could have been hindered is because of spiritual warfare. Sometimes you just encounter satanic opposition to the thing that you want to do. You want to do it. God wants you to do it. There's a spiritual desire within you. There's, it's, it's all good and godly and it's the right thing to do. It's the right time. It's, everything's good. And yet there's spiritual warfare involved. First Thessalonians 2.18 says it like this. We wanted very much to come to you. Paul wrote, Thessalonians, by the way. So he's writing again. He says, uh, we wanted very much to come to you. And I, Paul, tried again and again, but look, Satan prevented us. Sometimes there's a spiritual component to things, stuff you can't, you can't foresee, you can't really necessarily figure out, but you realize later on, this was a spiritual warfare issue. This, is, this was something that was hindering us that was uh, satanic opposition. You see, the absence of conflict is not the only way you determine God's will. There are more ways than just the absence of conflict to determine God's will. It's not just saying, well, it's smooth sailing, it's easy, and so because the doors just flew wide open and we walked right through and everything just happened, it must be God's will. Maybe not. 
Maybe Satan's opening doors for you and making it easy for you. Maybe, maybe the conflict isn't God resisting you. Maybe it's Satan resisting you. And so we've got to be a little bit more discerning with these things. You see, God's will is determined by sensitivity to the leading of his spirit, not the presence or absence of conflict. That, that's, you're, you're going to determine what God wants by his spirit leading you. Are you in tune with him? Are you asking him? Are you willing to go the direction he wants you to go? Thirdly and finally, good relationships require time. Good relationships require effort, but also good relationships require God. Verses 16 and 17. Look at verse 16. It says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Paul declares here in verse 16, an unashamed devotion to the gospel of Jesus. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That this is simultaneously, when I think about Paul, it's simultaneously encouraging and convicting, right? Like, like Paul is, man, I want to be like that guy that is so amazing. I, I can't believe his courage, his, his faithfulness. I mean, this guy could not be intimidated by anybody. He, was, he wasn't intimidated by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem who he was once a part of and had aspirations to grow and become more and more involved in the Jewish leadership. He wasn't intimidated by them. He wasn't intimidated by the political leaders. He, he would talk to any politician, any political leader uh, around. He would, he would preach the gospel directly to them and, and uh, try to, to, to bring them to faith in Jesus, uh, no matter what kind of power they had, even into the house of Caesar himself when he ended up getting to Rome finally. And Paul also wasn't intimidated by philosophical people that we see him when he's in, uh, in um, Athens and, and looking, you know, t- talking to the, the, the Greek philosophers and, and uh, the, the greatest minds of his day. He went and he held his own and he just preached the gospel and, and he just was there. It's, it's encouraging and, and really amazing all on one hand and super convicting on the other hand because I look at that and I go, man, how often do I just crumble under the pressure? You know, it's like I'm sitting on a plane and I sense the Lord stirring me up. Hey, tell them about Jesus. And I'm like, no, Lord, don't, don't make me do it. You know, I don't really, do you, I don't, they don't look like they want to hear. They look like they're really interested in their Cheetos right now. They, they don't want me to talk to them, you know? And so you just talk yourself out of it. And how often does that happen? You know, where you know the Lord's stirring you up and you just don't take the opportunities that he gives you. Now, this word ashamed, I think it's interesting that it's used here. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. By implication, I think that that would show us or say to us, maybe he's felt that way before. Maybe he's felt that shame before. I know for me that that's happened where I've missed an opportunity for the gospel and I felt ashamed of my how do I say it the right way? I felt ashamed of my shame to share the gospel, right? And I was like, oh, I missed an opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus. And that has provoked me to say, I won't do that again. I'm not gonna miss that opportunity again. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna stumble in, in that moment again. You see, this idea of ashamed, it implies that these are probably Paul's feelings. Well, why? I mean, think about this for a minute. When you just put yourself in this context, in a Roman context where, the, where Rome, uh, the, the most powerful nation in human history up to this point, uh, a, a nation that has controlled more of the known world than anybody else in human history, even till this day. No one else has, has covered as much as what Rome had covered in that time. They, they've, they've controlled more. And, and in that, this this extremely powerful nation, the gospel is being preached within that context. And the gospel all hinges on a poor Jewish carpenter who was crucified, who was executed by Rome. Like, where's the glory in that? Where's the power in that? There really isn't any from a human standpoint. From a human perspective, this is not glorious. This is not amazing. This is foolishness. And so there's a sense of shame associated with that. And there's this sense of, in, in which we feel like strange about it. I, I don't know if you've ever felt that way. You ever feel weird about, what do, I be- what do I believe? Am I crazy? Have I just thought all this up? If you haven't wrestled with that yet, you will. Uh, you will. All of us do. We all wrestle with that. And, and the reality is, is that um, coming through that is vitally important to understanding that God, in fact, has met you where you are and he's brought you to himself and he's transformed your life. That, that he, 
He, through those times, shows himself faithful and shows himself strong in those moments. You see, shame, it's a feeling. Shame's a feeling. It's an emotion. And most people are victims of their feelings. They're victims of their emotions because they're victims of emotional mismanagement. Most people, are, they just don't know how to manage their emotions. Instead of managing their emotions, they allow their emotions to control their lives. Their emotions just lead them anywhere and everywhere uh, they want them to go and their feelings take total control. You see, you overcome and control emotions when you realize this. Emotions are real. All emotions are real, but not all emotions are true. They're not always true. Sometimes your emotions lie. Sometimes they tell you crazy things. Now, sometimes they're totally true and it's exactly the way you should think and the stuff that you should do and whatnot. But all emotions are real, but they're not all necessarily true. And that's where you'll gain control over your emotions instead of letting them control you. And so Paul overcame his emotion. Look, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of, of Christ. Why? For... It's the power of God to salvation. You see, the gospel isn't just about a poor Jewish carpenter who died of crucifixion. The gospel also includes the fact that he laid his life down. Nobody took it from him. That he went into a tomb and raised himself from the dead. That's the power of the gospel. And because of that reality, faith in that truth, faith in that gospel good news message is what transforms the human heart and took someone like Paul who was breathing murderous threats against the church and changed him from the guy who was trying to eradicate Christianity into the number one proponent of Christianity. That's the power of the gospel. And so he knew it. And so when he, when he came into terms with not just the feeling that was surging and coursing through his body, but instead to say, the pow, it's the power of God, he believed the truth, he believed reality. When reality set the course, then his feelings had to follow. Instead of letting his feelings lead, and then truth could just be whatever he happened to feel in the moment. Now, that, that'll make you crazy. That'll, that'll make you do all sorts of insane things. You see, the seeming weakness of Jesus' death is actually his power to save. That is the reality. Now, notice here he also, he says here, for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now, you may have noticed that this is the second uh, time that a pairing has been made like this. The first time was in verse 14. He says, I'm a better debtor to both Greeks and barbarians. And then he says here in verse 17, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What this is, this is actually, he's using language like this on purpose uh, to help us understand what he's talking about is the entire known world. You see, um, this is, uh, this grouping, these are the two ways in which the entire world was divided based on the different cultures. So the, the Greek view of the world was that there are Greeks and non-Greeks, right? That's what verse 14 is talking about, to the Greeks and the barbarians. And the reason they said barbarians is because the Greek people loved their culture, loved their language so much that they said, we are awesome. Our language is beautiful. Every other language just sounds like bar, 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 bar. And so that's what uh, the word barbarian is. It's actually an onomatopoeic word that uh, says, states what it sounds like. They, they just said, your, your language even sounds like ridiculousness. Uh, and so they would just make fun of people people that way. And that's the way the Greeks divided the world. There's Greeks and everybody else. And so too, the Jewish people divided the world that way as well. They said there are Jews and there's just everybody else. And we talked about this last week, how even the Jews uh, would discourage people from converting to Judaism because they believe some of the staunch uh, theologians in Judaism believed, and they still do to this day, that God created all the other people as fire would to stoke the fires of hell. That's their purpose. You have a purpose. God made you for a reason. It's so that you can go to hell and make hell hot. Uh, wow, that's Thank you. I, maybe. I don't really know what to say to that, you know? Uh, and so that, that was their view, that there are these two groups of people, the chosen of God and then everybody else. Now, there's another division for humanity, and this division for humanity comes by way of the gospel. And that division of humanity is that there are those who are in Christ, there are those who are saved, and there's everybody else. The difference here is that the Greeks looked down on everybody else and said, you guys are all stupid. The Jews looked down on everybody else and said, you guys, you don't get to be a part of us. You guys are firewood for hell. Within Christianity, the Christians want everybody to join the family of God because I've got a great dad. 
that God is a great dad and he wants to adopt all the kids he can. And so he wants you to be a part of the family too. He wants his family to grow. It's a very different kind of a thing. You see, those, there's those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. But Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is for everybody, not just for a select few. Notice verse 17. He says this, for in it, the gospel message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the power of God uh, to salvation is there. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. You see, righteousness is the key factor in all of this. Righteousness. See that there? The righteousness of God is revealed. Now, what this is not saying is that God's righteousness is what's being revealed. Right? If, if God's righteousness, God's perfection is revealed, is that good news to you? Is that hope to you? No. And here's why. Because God's goodness just shows you the contrast of your failure. That's all it does. There's, there's nothing, there's no good hope, there's no good news in God's righteousness being revealed. That's not what that's saying. It's not saying that God is perfect and you're not. That just shows you your failure and your deserved judgment. You see, the reality is that everybody's in a relationship with God. Every single one of us are in a relationship with God. Even the atheist who says God doesn't exist, which, that, by the way, that's a very arrogant statement to, to say that you have infinite knowledge of infinite things and you know that God isn't there. That, that's a very, like an atheist standpoint is an arrogant standpoint. There's no way you could know everything to know if God was even there at all. And, and so if you say that there is no God, you have a relationship with God. It's, it's just a bad one. It's not a good relationship. You just have a bad relationship with God. You see, the difference is that only Christians have a good relationship with God because everyone else has chosen to live under his judgment. That, that being in Christ just means that Jesus took the judgment of God for me. It doesn't mean that I'm better than other people. It doesn't mean that I'm more awesome, that I'm more moral, or that I'm somehow uh, more, uh, more you know generous or... Uh, whatever it happens to be. No, it just means that Jesus moved into my life and changed me. He transformed me. That's all it means. And so the, that's the only difference. You see, this isn't a declaration about God's rightness, the rightness of God. It's stating that the rightness of God is given to people for rightness with God. That's what this statement is. The righteousness of God. It's saying this, that the only way for a perfect God to have relationship with imperfect man is to make man perfect. That's the only way. And how can God make man perfect? Well, by God entering into human history, putting on flesh to be a substitute for humanity, perfectly fulfilling the law, and then Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, he's able to say, now you can have my perfection. You can have my right standing. It's not that the perfection of God is revealed. We've already got that in the law. God's perfect. No, it's this. You can be just as perfect as Jesus. That's the mind-blowing thing about all of this. You see, the, the way of being made perfect um, through the law, it, it's, it's a failed attempt before it even begins. Why? Because before I even know there is a law, I already have violated it. That you failed at violating God's law before you even knew it existed. That's the fallen state of humanity. And so what has to happen, we'll get more, more of this in chapter four, but what has to happen is that, um, that we are, are shown here a foreshadowing of the imputed righteousness, that Jesus's righteousness is imputed or given to you. His goodness, his rightness, his perfection is given to you. That, that's such an amazing, mind-blowing concept that I'm right with God, not because of me, but because of Jesus and his work. Now, faith, look at there, is the only way to get it. For the righteousness of God is revealed where, how? From faith to faith. Why? Because the just shall live by faith. You see, faith is the only way to possess the rightness with God, the rightness of God to make you right with God. You can't do enough to undone the bad. You can't do enough good to undo the bad that you did yesterday. Um, my mom uh, owns a business in uh, a little town in Arizona, Pine Top, uh, Arizona. And the, the business, uh, the storefront part of the business is right on a main street. Uh, and one day there was uh, next door, there was a new driver, so a, a young new driver had just had their license not too long. And uh, they were pulling out of a parking 
parking lot getting onto the main street and their drink fell over into the passenger side. And so the driver leaned over to grab the drink and in doing so turned the steering wheel and they drove their car right through the glass into the, sh into the showroom of the store. Like literally drove right through the glass and parked their car in the middle of, of the showroom of the, the store. What a, what a crazy moment. I mean, it's, it's like an explosion happens and a car is sitting in the middle. It's not really what they were expecting to see that day. Now, here's the thing. That driver from that point on saying, you know what, I'm gonna be more cautious. I'm gonna be more careful. I'm gonna change the way, if something falls, I'm gonna either leave it there or pull over off the side of the road and then get it. That driver making those changes is good. It's right, it's appropriate, but it doesn't change the fact that they drove through a store. It doesn't change the fact that they drove through a building. You see, my shot at doing right, at doing good, I already took it and I missed but Jesus shot for me and he made it. He hit the bullseye perfectly. He didn't miss. From faith to faith means that your salvation comes through faith, but so your perpetual, your ongoing relationship with God is done by faith as well. You see, Paul's good relationship with the church at Rome is based upon and flowed from his good relationship with God. And the same is true for us. That good relationships with people flow from a good relationship with God. That's how these work. So here's the question. How are your relationships? Take a minute to evaluate those. How are your relationships? Most importantly, how's your relationship with God? Because like we said before, everybody has a relationship with God. Just not everybody has a good relationship with God. And the only way for you to have a good relationship with God is by faith in Jesus. That's the message of the gospel, the message of the good news, that you believe that Jesus died for you that he paid the price for your missed shots, for your sin, and that his resurrection seals your opportunity to be adopted and received by God. Will you believe that? Will you have faith in that? Will you trust in that? Will you hope in that? If you will, then all you need to do is cry out to him even now. Just pray a simple prayer saying, Jesus, I know you died for me. I know your, your death was on my behalf. And I pray that you would forgive me and be my God. I commit my life to you from this day forward. That's all it takes. And if you do that, you become adopted into the family of God. And maybe, maybe you're estranged from God. Maybe you've walked away from God. Maybe, you've, maybe you have hidden sin. Maybe you have this thing in your life that you're just hoping isn't gonna be revealed or isn't gonna get exposed. The same is true for you to come to Jesus with it. He's the only one who can fix it. He's not waiting for you to fix your life. He's not waiting for you to get things in order. And you know what? It's just too dirty. It's too messy. It's too crazy. No, let Jesus move in and clean things up. Let him come in and take the place of putting everything in the right order that it needs to be. Don't hold on to your sin. Let it go today. You see, your type of and level of relationship with God is directly reflected in your relationships with people, whether it's good or bad. So how are your relationships? And where do you, where do you need the Lord to fix things? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the chance to study it together and to give our attention to it. And we pray that you would help us, Lord, to apply your word to our lives, that we would know you and that we would pursue relationship with you and that we would, uh, like we were just exhorted here, that we would live from faith to faith. And so God, we commit the rest of our day to you saying thank you for your great love for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.